the smart factory of the future for us, it's a highly efficient, uh, flexible, and a responsive workspace powered by robotics and AI. Welcome to Manufacturing Happy Hour, the podcast where we get real about the latest trends and technologies impacting modern manufacturers. Manufacturing Happy Hour. Each week, we interview industry experts that are at the top of their craft and give you the tools, tactics, and strategies you need to take your career and your business to the next level. And now, your host, Chris Lukey. Hey, what's up? It's episode 134. Today, we're discussing how the factory of the future is re-industrializing America. Our guest this week is Bernard Cass, the CEO and founder of Rios. Rios is bringing a robotics-as-a-service model to robotic work cells and end-of-line packaging, but more than anything, they're reinventing factory automation. You're going to hear about all that today, so here are three things you can expect from today's episode. First, we're going to hear about Bernard's background and his non-traditional path to becoming a startup leader. Second, we're going to go beyond robotics as a service and talk about factory automation as a service. And finally, we're going to talk about Silicon Valley, venture capital, and startups. We'll cover some of the current events taking place around March 2023 when this episode was recorded. But regardless of when you listen, I think you're going to pull some valuable insights from Bernard. Before we get rolling, as always, if you want to access any information from this episode, well, hey, you can do that over at the show notes page at manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 134. That'll take you straight to this episode. Before we dive in, I do want to give a shout out to our newest sponsor of the show, ePlan. ePlan provides software and service solutions in the fields of electrical engineering, automation, and mechatronics because they develop one of the world's leading design software solutions for machine, plant, and panel builders. And if you want to hear what it means to provide data-driven panel design for manufacturers, well, tune in to episode 132. That wasn't too long ago. We spoke with Sean Mulherin from ePlan. We heard about his globe trotting. We learned quite a bit about panel design in the process. So, Definitely tune into that if you want to connect with Sean or ePlan or hear the episode. Well, hey, you can do that by going to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash ePlan. And with that, it's time to jump into today's episode. We're going to head to Palo Alto to meet up with Bernard Cass. Bernard, I've been looking forward to this interview for a long time, and you already know what the first question is. If we were having this conversation over a beverage in person, where would that be? Describe the setting. All right. Likewise, Chris. Um, so if we were having this this conversation, it would be at Antonio's Nut House in, in Palo Alto. Um, it's actually one of the last dive bar. Uh, with a funky ambience, with pool tables, um, a taqueria, a stuffed gorilla in a cage where, where patrons can scoop up peanuts, and there's a giant mural on, on an outside wall with, with scenes from the bar. Actually, this, 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 uh, this Antonio's nut house no longer exists. It actually crumbled during, during COVID. I mean, the owner hoped that uh, Mark Zuckerberg, who frequented the bar during the company's early days, will help us save the, the, the dive bar before its, its lease ends. But that, that actually never happened. But it was a really cool place. And I used to um, visit this place when I was working uh, for Xerox Park 
All right. So going back in time, saying we're at Antonio's, if it were still open, I, I love the vision of a Palo Alto dive bar because I know to the north, San Francisco has countless dive bars, but I've got to imagine they're more few and far between in, uh, in Palo Alto. So, well, let's say we're sitting there at Antonio's Nut House having a conversation over some bar peanuts and uh, a couple beers. This is very much a at the bar type question because I see that Rios is reindustrializing America. So, Bernard, at a macro level, maybe not, not maybe not even specific to Rios. How do we reindustrialize America? How do you answer that as if we're having bar peanuts and a beverage? Well, Rio's mission is to transform online industries into smart factories of the future powered by robotics and AI. And this is really our, our defini definition of reindustrializing America. It's really transforming and digitizing these aging industries. So smart factories of the future, robotics, AI, we're going to touch on these here uh, here in a little bit in the interview. But first, I want to get to know you a little bit because you have a, a unique background for a founder and, and you have a PhD. And I'd love to hear a bit more about that experience. And maybe first, why did you decide to pursue a PhD? Yeah, I mean, there are, there are a couple of reasons for that. I mean, it's, it's really, it was a PhD in, in, in physics. And a couple of reasons. I mean, the first is passion for the subject. So many people um, like myself have a deep passion, a deep fascination with physics and, and its ability to explain um, the fundamental principles governing the, the universe. And a PhD program allows us in, in general to immerse in, in this field, to expand our knowledge and, and also to contribute to the scientific community. And then there's also the part about um, intellectual challenges. I mean, physics in, in general is known for its complex and, and challenging concepts, which can be um, highly appealing to um, sort of me and, and others who enjoy tackling difficult problems. So pursuing a PhD in physics um, offers an opportunity to engage in, in cutting-edge research, to develop uh, problem-solving skills, and, and work on, on challenging scientific questions. And then there's also the, the, the research opportunity uh, as well. I mean, it, it's a chance for it was a chance for me to contribute to the advancement of scientific knowledge through original research. So it's it's literally working on, on innovative projects, developing new theories, uh, and exploring novel applications of, of, of existing knowledge in, in various areas of physics. Sure. So the research, answering those big questions. You know, I, I guess, did you know when you went into it, what you wanted to do following your PhD work? Did you have an idea what that was going to look like? Yes, I, I had a, a well. Yes, I had an idea, and I completely deviated from it. So I actually wanted to become a professor. You, usually, people who pursue a PhD in physics, I mean, they are thinking about academic careers. They're thinking about going for a postdoc and then ultimately becoming a professor or researcher um, at a research institution. And well, and I completely sort of derailed from that. Once I, when when I was actually doing my my postdoc. And just to sort of take a step back, I mean, I think the, the primary, re primary reason why I actually deviated from it is purely for economic reasons. When I was doing my postdoc, um, I was paid a certain stipend, and then I ended up reading an article um, stating that maids in Manhattan were earning as much as a postdoc, uh, especially a postdoc um, doing physics. 
So that was actually very discouraging. So I thought to myself, I'm using, I'm actually using all this, this brain power and just to be paid, um, is, is the comparison. And, and that article, by the way, floated around and, and, and I, I spoke with my peers doing PhDs and they were all like looking at that saying, well, I don't think the, the universities or even government makes an effort to pay us what, what we are worth. So I think it, yeah, it's, it, it was primarily the, the economic, uh, for economic reasons that we, I, I deviated from that. I ended up um, going for a non, non-academic career option. Interesting. You're, you know, it's funny. You're not the first person that I've talked to on this podcast that was looking to go the professor route and then became an entrepreneur. So I, I guess that begs the question, you know, how, how did getting your PhD in your estimation prepare you for becoming a founder and an entrepreneur? Because that's probably, you know, even though I've heard it twice on this show, I don't think that's the traditional path. So I'd love to hear maybe some of the unique things you learned from that experience that you feel positioned yourself well for the career path you're on. Yeah, so having a PhD and a PhD in physics, I mean, there are certain skills that that are transferable, but I I don't think anything prepares us nicely to become a founder or or CEO of of a company. I think you you really learn on, on the job. I don't think you can even well learn it in books. I mean, I, I actually read books, and and in practice, well, it all turned out to be very, very different. So, I mean, in, in terms of what I gleaned from my PhD program, was it, it's along the lines of well, so when when you do a PhD, you are building a lot of skills around critical thinking, data analysis. Those those, those are actually very very transferable. And those have allowed me to think uh, critically, to think outside the box. But I think that that's about it. It's, it's literally about how do you think about a problem? How do you think about solving problems and in, in a logical fashion, in a, in a very rational way? So one more question then as it relates to your background, but I think this will be a nice transition as, as we move into talking about Rios. You know, at the start, you mentioned you're focused on enabling the factory of the future through AI and robotics. You know, can you tell us a little bit about your PhD? How much overlap was there between what you learned studying for a PhD in physics and and what you're doing now at Rios? Or were there other areas that interested you back then? Zero overlap. (laughs) So when I I actually started, well, even beyond my PhD, I mean, I delve into a lot of topics. I mean, I I delve into computational physics, I delve into quantum computing. And then during my PhD, I was delving into metamaterials, into photonics. So things that are completely, well, it's it's completely different from, from the stuff that I'm actually doing now. And what again, what ultimately transferred is the ability to solve complex problems, to think critically about things and to really think out of the box. And it's in, well, analytical skills also embedded. So other than that, it was like, yeah, it, it's really night and day. In, in that case, I have one more question on this topic that I think the manufacturing leaders out there can learn a lot from you. Uh, on this topic, because I think a lot of people, whether they're deep into their career, whether they've just gotten a graduate degree or a PhD, whatever the scenario, I think some people get down this path and they're like, oh, it's too late for me to do something different. But as you just said, there was no overlap 
between what you did for your PhD and what Rios is doing now. So what advice would you give to folks that might have that hesitancy where it's like, I'm thinking about doing something completely different and maybe I'm nervous. I'm scared to go go after that because I put all this time and effort and sunk cost, if you will, into this other endeavor. What advice do you have to those folks? Well, my biggest advice is to pursue your dreams. Like life is too short to be living in, in someone else's dreams. And well, life, life is too short in, in, in general to be doing the things that you, you don't really want to do. So it's never too late. I love it. Well, hey, let's uh, let's talk a little bit about Rios. And, I, I, you know, when I look at what you do, I see robotics as a service. But I also feel like you do something a little bit bigger than that, right? Because I think we're starting to hear about hardware as a service, robotics as a service, machine as a service, all these as a services, right? But you talk about factory automation as a service. So how would you say factory automation as a service is different from some of these other things I just rattled off? Yeah, good question, Chris. So when when we hear robots as a service, so robots as a service in itself is a business model in which robotics um, companies offer the, offer the use of their robots via a subscription-based contract. So when people in, in general hear the word RAS, they think about a robotic arm or mobile robot as an offering and tend to think more along the lines of, of labor replacement. But we are not purely a labor replacement company. I mean, that, that's, that's one dimension. Providing a scalable robotic workforce is only one dimension of the problem. We are here to transform our aging factories into smart factories of the future powered by robotics and AI. We think more about factory-wide automation at scale. We think about the smart factory of the future. And the smart factory of the future for us, it's a highly efficient, uh, flexible, and a responsive workspace powered by robotics and AI. It, it's, a, it's, a, it's a workspace that's able to adapt to changing conditions and continuously improve its operations. So we want to help businesses to stay ahead in, in the global marketplace. So we are not only thinking about replacing labor, but we are also thinking about increasing productivity and being able to dynamically um, respond to shifting customer demands. So that's the, 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 the difference between, well, robots as a service and, and really factory automation as a service. So in, in that case, maybe since we're, we're on a podcast, people are listening to this when they're on the go, in the car, washing dishes, whatever it may be. Can you describe what the factory of the, the future looks like from the perspective of, you know, the worker, whether they're in the office or whether they're on the plant floor? Just like describe what, what this vision looks like, maybe in the context of like a, a day in the life of someone inside of that factory. Yeah, so Smart Factory for us is a highly advanced and interconnected workspace. So the factory um, is filled with a wide variety of robots, um, each with its own specialized function. I mean, some robots would handle tasks like uh, machine tending, while others would be responsible for tasks like quality control or packaging or palletizing. And these robots would be connected to a central AI system, which would provide them with instructions and, and data uh, they need to perform their tasks. So the AI system would also be responsible for monitoring the, the factory's operations, identifying areas for improvement, and, and making adjustments as needed. And when we also talk about smart factory, and we're envisioning the smart factory, 
uh, to be connected to other systems and, and networks, allowing it to seamlessly share data and communicate with other factories, supply chain partners and customers. So this would enable the, the factory to respond quickly and effectively to changes in the market and, and customer demand, ensuring that it always has the right products in the right quantities at the right time. Yeah, so maybe I just want to kind of repeat my understanding and then you can correct me if I'm missing anything because the way you describe it, right? I picture robots out there on the line, whether it's machine tending, whether it's palletizing at the end of the line, they're all out there doing their jobs, if you will, right? And with artificial intelligence, they're able to learn as they go. They might be able to do a job more effectively. Let's say, I don't know, maybe you're you're 10% quicker at palletizing, you know, because you're leveraging that information from the AI. And then I think one of the last things I heard you say was you can take market data at that point to make changes. So maybe at least the way I heard it, I could just imagine saying, oh, there's an increased demand in this part. We need to do more of this. You, you can pull that from the ERP, for example. I, that was just my understanding from what I heard. I'd love for you maybe to provide some additional color if I'm on the right track or if there are things I need to adjust in my way of thinking. Correct. But it's data all the way around. So, I mean, for instance, for us, we do offer business intelligence to customers. And the data is the data that we aggregate from the robot, from sensors, from cameras, um, connections to WMS systems. It, it's really a lot of data that we're actually aggregating. And then we are transforming that in business intelligence that allow that allows the, the, the customer um, to really understand their, their operations and then being able to optimize their operations based on that understanding. So one final question in, in this realm before I ask you more of like the inside baseball of being at a startup. And I was just thinking about this. If I'm a company and I'm hearing the things you're saying, I think it all sounds great, right? I want my factory to run like that. I want a factory of the future. But I imagine there are a lot of leaders out there that are like, I just bought my first robot. I barely know how to use that right now. I'm still trying to get used to having more automation in, in my facility. Who are the right type of people to be thinking about what you're talking about? Because I feel like factory of the future, you know, factory automation as a service might sound daunting to some, but I'd love if you could kind of describe how it can be approachable for you know, maybe anyone in the industry that's really, even if they're just starting to cut their teeth on automation. Yeah, I mean, it, it is a concept that can be digested by, by anyone. Well, we simply have to tell the story piece by piece. I mean, we, we typically um, look at, let's say, individual assembly lines, and, and, and we walk them through how they can increase productivity. We walk them through how we are building process optimization modules for them and how we are delivering um, robots. And then we also walk them, it, it's, it's gradually through the entire story on how we can actually go and, and transform their, their factories in, in the future. But that always have, um, I mean, it's always phase gated and that always have um, timelines associated with them. So uh, no one wants to, do a, to go for a very drastic change. In, in, in one shot. Yeah, that I mean, that makes sense, right? There's a timeline. So in that case, what's what's usually the fundamental step one? And let's say it's a facility that does have, it has a robot, it has automation, right? Most people aren't starting from that step, but 
what is step one if you had for the the leaders out there? Yeah, step one is looking at the biggest pain point, uh, the biggest money drain, or the the line that's not producing enough, that's not able to keep up with production. I think that's the first step. It's always, um, and then it's always a, a low hanging fruit person. Excellent. So looking for the low hanging fruit, looking for those, you know, those bottlenecks, if you will. I appreciate you taking us through what what Rios is doing and how that applies to the manufacturers out there. Now, the other thing is you're you're still what I would consider a startup, right? You know, and it's I think some people that listen to this show don't understand how long it takes to get some of these interviews on the book sometimes because I was just looking back. I think it was a year ago that we first started talking and it's like, yeah, we we got to do an episode sometime. And when I came up with that, you had just gotten your Series A funding and but I, I still think that this is a topic I want to talk about. So you'd gotten your Series A. What were you, as a founder of the company, focused on during that round? Yeah, so for Series, I mean, usually when a startup gets a Series A, they have to show velocity and, and demonstrate that the company is a real money-making business for investors. So what that entails is we get money and then we have to show customer traction. We have to showcase deployments, meaning production-grade machines, uh, ability to support customers. We need to show repeat customers. We show scale, um, meaning the, uh, the ability to replicate um, what we've already rolled out. We have to show landing span strategies and also show unit economics. And this is what a, a Series A really entails, all the, the funding associated with a Series A. So once these milestones, then then, then that's when the, the Series B investor comes in, when they look at all the accomplishments. We'll be right back, right after a word from our sponsor. This episode of Manufacturing Happy Hour is sponsored by Reuters Events, Supply Chain USA 2023, taking place May 17th and 18th in Chicago, Illinois. Because you're a listener of this podcast, you can get $350 off your price of registration. So over the past few years, everyone in the manufacturing industry has experienced supply chain woes. Parts not showing up, lead times getting pushed out further than you can imagine. While the supply chain might have been an afterthought in the past, a well-orchestrated supply chain is now fundamental to business success. Supply Chain USA is bringing together the end-to-end supply chain to share new best practices and strategies so that you can turn supply chain from a cost center to a value generator. This is your chance to be one of over 900 executives from Fortune 500 retailers, manufacturers, and forward-thinking logistics organizations that are shaping the future of supply chain operations. To register, go to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash supplychainusa to claim your spot today. And don't forget to use the code HAPPYHOUR350 for $350 off your ticket price. Again, that's Reuters Events Supply Chain USA 2023, taking place May 17th and 18th in Chicago, Illinois. We hope to see you there. And now, back to today's episode. So velocity was the first word that stuck out. Then you mentioned scale, proving that you're a company that can that, that let's say has this momentum and can grow beyond that. What I'm curious about now, since I did mention that I initially prepared for this a year ago, the next question has to be, 
how have your priorities evolved over the past year, right? I'm sure that was the starting point um, when we were talking there. But as the startup world moves quickly, I mean, how have your priorities evolved since then? Um, it still remains this, the, the priorities have, um, remain the, the same. I mean, right now, amid the, the current economic downturn and, and the looming recession, I mean, startups, in, including us, are actively um, seeking funding to navigate um, these challenging times and, and ensure our resilience. So let me sort of take a step back on, on how well the, the macroeconomic environment um, has changed. And, and that's how, how it's actually determining how we navigate um, fundraising. So it all started because of, of poor public market performance of tech companies. I mean, that's significantly impact VC investing. So when that happens, VCs or venture capitalists will have a much harder time raising money. And their uh, what we call LPs, their limited partners, will expect more investment discipline. So VCs then will be looking for category creators or, or winners and will tend to scrutinize more. So then that means the bar becomes higher uh, to show that velocity and, and demonstrate that the company is a real money-making business. So VCs then become more risk-averse. And so the effect that it has on companies right now, it, it means that, well, we really, really need to prove ourselves. And now, in, in order for, to prove ourselves, we know it, it may take longer to do that. And we want to be able to give ourselves more runway. And to be able to give ourselves more runway, then we need to raise money to actually weather that storm. And also what ended up sort of happening or what's happening this year, and, and we'll, we're, we are seeing that across the board, investors are shifting from a growth at all cost model to focus more on profitability metrics. So in the past, it was, hey, by the way, I'm actually giving you X dollar amount, a lot of money for you to grow massively. And now they come back, they're coming back and saying, well, that's no longer the, the metric, especially when there's a looming recession, especially when um, tech companies are, are actually not doing well. So now it's all about, well, things like um, revenue per employee has, has now become a, a new metric for, for VCs. So then that sort of, yeah, so our priorities have remained the same, but everything has become much more stringent. Like, yeah, as a startup company, I mean, what we were, what we've always been interested in is, is really to grow, to be money making. I mean, that, that hasn't changed. And showing velocity hasn't changed, customer traction, deployments. But it's now, now it's like we literally have to stand out. We have to be really the best at, at what we do. And we have to be able to clearly demonstrate that we're really a money making company. That was so good. I, I learned uh, a few things just just from that answer you gave there. I, I'm going to recap one of them, right? Like you, you just talked about the the priorities of VCs are shifting, right? Or the people that are investing in these companies, growth at all costs, as it was before, to profitability. And I think what you described, like revenue per employee, for example, really tangible metric that helps you know understand how people are measuring that. But one of the first things you said that that I, I want to dig into just a little bit more was that VCs are looking 
for category creators. And I think that's a great way to describe it because I think we hear the stories of it's like, oh, look at all these startups that were created during the financial downturn of like 2008, for example, right? We we romanticize these downturns after the fact because of all the companies that come out of them. But I'd love just, and, and you hinted at some of this during your answer, but what makes for, let's say, a category creator, for example? Yeah, so um, category creator is, well, if you look at um, robotics companies in, in, in general, I mean, if you look at uh, each one of us, you realize we're all in different markets, market segments, we're tackling different problems, and we're also using very different approaches. So category creator, and, and that's really the definition of a category creator. So you go into a, a market and you say, hey, by the way, I've, I've, I actually identify a white space in, in, in this market. We I identify a pain point really across the board, and I want to build a product to actually address this pain point. And this is how you, um, well, a startup becomes a category creator. So we've essentially created a category. And in, in our case, for instance, it's, it's, let's say, end of line packaging while well, putting items in boxes. When we go to every factory, we realize, well, this is a very labor intensive task. Like we haven't been to a factory where this wasn't done by human operators, I mean, especially when the, the factory is handling uh, multiple SKUs or objects with different shapes and, and sizes. So then it becomes, yeah, then, then we become the, the category creator. And if you uh, and, and if you cite any any company, I mean, you realize they are actually doing more or less the same thing. They are trying to find that white space, that that really that pain point that everyone has or, or a niche of customers have. I have one more question along this theme, and and you know, people will end up listening to this podcast right away, but some of them might not find it for a year or two as well. So, you know, in recent news, as of the recording of this podcast, I think unless someone's been living under a rock, everyone has seen what happened with Silicon Valley Bank, right? And I'd love to approach this from a standpoint of what can what can we learn from this scenario from, let's say, the perspective of a startup founder, right? How do you weather a storm, like a situation like we just saw, at the one at Silicon Valley Bank. Yeah, it depends on which dimension you're actually talking about. Well, in, if the, these were unpredictable, but um, the storm here was actually very unpredictable. So we wouldn't have known how to well navigate that. But now that we know that this particular storm exists, all companies right now are diversifying when it comes to banking. So in hindsight, then we say, hey, by the way, we we, we are now in, in a better position to avoid something like this in the future, simply by not banking with only a single bank, but having a diversity of banks. How, how did, um, from, well, I, I guess I have a question from a general standpoint, because you're out there in Silicon Valley. I mean, we're, we're having our theoretical drinks at a dive bar in Palo Alto right now. So what did you notice about leaders that kept a cool head during, let's say, that tumultuous weekend before there was a bit of a resolution at the end of it? Yeah, so leaders that kept a cool head um, are all those thinking more strategically, as in, yeah, we don't panic and we figure out, well, what are the things that we actually need to do? Um, 
to to solve the, the the problem at hand. And when that happened, I think the the primary concern for people was at the very least in California was to run payroll. Well, it's illegal in California not to pay someone on time. Like that's a real no-no in California. We have to pay people on uh, when payroll is due. So it, it was about well figuring strategically how to do that, and also well as 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 a VC um, back uh, as a VC back company, the 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 natural well, what what actually came to mind was well well we are VC back company so. Our investors or board members, well, actually need to help us in, in navigating those. So that um, a lot of companies have actually gone through that thought process of strategizing and also going to their own investors and say, "Hey, by the way, um, you're on our board. Uh, you have high conviction uh, regarding the company, and you guys really need to help us. We're we're really in in, in a pickle." For us, it was a little bit different. I mean, we thought about this very, very differently. I mean, for us, I mean, thanks to our, our, the quick thinking of head of finance, we were able to run payroll. So that problem was solved. And then we ask ourselves, well, what's the worst possible scenario that could happen? Well, we lose all our, our, our money in the bank and we only get the 250K from, from the FDIC. But the, our, our solace was that, well, we were actually uh, we are, we are, we are we're actually raising funds for that Series A extension that allowed us to weather the storm. So we said, worst case scenario, we'll lose that money, but we'll get some new money in and we'll still be alive. Where and most companies will simply die because of that. So I mean that that's what, what uh, well how we actually we we thought about that but but in but it was also strategizing as well saying well what what do we need to do next but we weren't so worried but others who kept a cool head were really strategizing like how could, can we cut costs um, how can we leave with 250k uh, in in two weeks and how can we go back um, to investors and ask them money. And, and also ask them money at, at no onerous terms and or no terms at all, um, for that matter. Like some VCs actually, uh, what, what, I, what I learned from other founders, I mean, they've stepped up. They transferred money to the bank account or new bank accounts of, of, of startup companies uh, so that these guys could run payroll. So, I mean, there are, there are a broad range of, of VCs. I mean, there are VCs who are really helpful. And they really care about companies. They have high conviction and they did their part. And you also have well, other types of VCs who capitalize on, on, on the situation and come back with very onerous terms and say, hey, all right, I see that you're in a pickle. So I'm actually going to try to squeeze out um, every penny out of your or increase my ownership. I think this makes a lot of sense, right? And it goes back to a lesson I've heard a couple of times around. You're not just picking a VC for the money. You're picking a VC for all these other other elements of how do they know your industry? How are they going to help you out in a bind, right? Are they going to create, you know, in this specific situation, you know, favorable terms to help you versus help themselves? 
I think I learned a lot from from that particular answer that that you just shared. And 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 you know the other thing I think to summarize at least what I learned from that was hey, you got to prioritize, right? You talked about payroll, right? You got to make payroll. How are we going to do that? And then how are we going to strategize on these other ways that we can survive, right? You gave a very tangible way of how Rios is doing that. But I hope for everyone out there listening, they pulled the, you know, the right conclusions from that on, hey, this is how leaders work through challenging situations like that. It's not always going to be a banking crisis, but you know, there's a lot to be said about keeping a cool head during those scenarios. Bernard, I, I've really enjoyed the conversation today. As, as we get to the end here, is there anything that you wish I would have asked that, that hasn't come up yet? Yeah, I think the question of, and, and this is a question that we actually get very, very often, as in what sets us apart from other companies or other robotics companies for that matter. And my, and, and I can actually um, go, go ahead and, and answer that. So first, we, we, we actually don't view any other robotics companies as, as competitors. And, and I sort of did mention that we are all in, in different markets or market segments with tackling different problems and, and using different, uh, we're using very different approaches. And, and those considerations alone um, set us apart. And I actually spoke with um, CEOs of other robotics companies at Promat. I mean, I spoke with MB's CEO, Formi, Covariant, Plus One, Agility, and, and Pfizer. And I also got a chance to speak with people at, at Berkshire Green and Pico. I mean, they're all great companies. But it turns out that we could all partner with each other to deliver a total factory solution to customers. As in, yeah, we're not really competing, but uh, it's really like, yeah, we have complementary strength. But for us, when it comes to us um, in, in, in general, we are very customer centric. And for us, it's about, it's all about the playbook um, for customers. So we, um, we have built what we call the best overall playbook to win. I mean, we have a combination of a vertically integration, a vertical integration strategy approach uh, combined with best-in-class technologies and, and a disruptive hybrid RAS model. And because of the combination of, of, of those, that brings unparalleled benefits to customers. So for customers, we care about a few things. We care about fast deployment or faster than anyone else in, in the world. We care about this on-demand automation. We care about um, being a one-stop shop solutions provider um, for customers. We care about delivery of value beyond labor replacement. We've always talked about that. We care about, well, increasing their throughput, increasing their yield, having fewer defective products. And we also care about superior product experience. I mean, it has to be an easy to use, uh, very intuitive product. And we also care about seamless integration into existing workflows. I mean, we primarily work in, in brownfield environments. And the last thing that sort of we, we care about and that we deliver to customer is really optimization of their production process through business intelligence. So that's what sort of uh, if you if you talk about different what differentiates us um, from from others in, in, in general. But it's all it, it's not because of others, it's because we are customer centric and we think about well the playbook for the customer. We don't really think about, hey, I'm actually building that box be differently because someone else is building that box differently. We look at it from the point of view of the customer. It's uh, 
It's funny. I had actually meant to ask you that question on, hey, what sets you apart from like a, a regular dexterous like robotic solutions company? And from your answers, like in the middle of the interview, I'm like, oh, well, these these folks are already clearly set apart from them. They're doing the factory of the future. They're talking about how this all comes together. I appreciate how you summed that up here at the end to put a to put a bow around that, because it's clear you're doing some amazing, let's say, category creation type activities here in the automation and robotics space. It's been excellent having you on the show, Bernard. I'm going to have links to connect with you and Rios in the show notes page at manufacturinghappyhour.com. And, uh, you know, I wish it were still open because otherwise it would be great to grab a beer with you at Antonio's Nuthouse in Palo Alto at some point. But hopefully we'll get to enjoy a beverage in the future. It's been awesome speaking with you, Chris. Cheers. Hey, thanks for listening. After a year in the making, we finally made this episode possible. It was great having Bernard and Rios on this show. If you want to connect with Bernard, if you want to learn more about Rios, well, hey, you can head straight to rios.ai. That's R-I-O-S dot A-I. Or, hey, you can go to the show notes page at manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 134, and you can get to everything that we talked about today. Summary of the episode, listen to the episode. Well, you're already listening to the episode. You don't need to go to the website to do that. But, hey, if you want to connect with Bernard on LinkedIn, all of that's over there. As we wrap the episode, I do want to give a final shout-out to both of today's sponsors, First up, we got Reuters Events, May 17th and 18th in Chicago, Illinois. I'm going to be there for their Supply Chain USA event. You can join us too. Go to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash supply chain USA. Use the code happyhour350 for $350 off admission. Hope to see you there in Chicago this spring. Then, of course, shout out to the newest sponsor, ePlan. If you want to listen to our recent episode with Sean Mulherin, well, hey, you can go to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash ePlan to learn more about them today. So lots going on around Manufacturing Happy Hour. Hope you've been enjoying it. Hope to see you at some of these events coming up this spring. But in the meantime, stay innovative, stay thirsty, and I'll catch you all next week. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Manufacturing Happy Hour. Powered by the Industrial Network.